Hey everybody, welcome back to another week of Patriot to the Core podcast. I appreciate you joining me again this week. I am coming off of an awesome weekend. I attended Kyle D4's two-day scoped rifle class. And man, it was a good time. Uh, Really good for me. I learned a ton. Uh, We didn't just cover uh, guns and and shooting and shooting, you know, short uh, 100 to about 465 yards is the longest we went. I mean, it was really, we, we studied the optics and the reticles and uh, also did some combatives and some blade work and blade defense. We did um, some binocular work, <laughs> got some, really got some lessons on binoculars and then also looking for, you know, finding things, I guess, out in the, out in nature. And we did some, also some up, up close, about seven yards uh, shooting. So it, it was, it was really awesome I'm trying to think of what else we did, but uh, we, oh, we went over medical, um, Anyway, I just encourage you to check out Kyle and his company, D4 Performance. Uh, I actually had Kyle as a guest on episode number 26 back in April. So if you go back and listen, you can kind of get a feel for his uh, background, you know, what he did in the military and in the Navy. Uh, he's a very, um, he, he's not really outspoken when it comes to his background. Uh, he doesn't um, broadcast everything that he did in the military, but um, he's very, uh, very well respected and also um, he's definitely got the credentials to, to, to back up what he's doing so awesome class they're hard to get in uh, so I'll put a link to his website in the show notes also before we get in with uh, our Major General Bowles I would say that if you've updated your if you have an iPhone if you've updated your iOS to the latest version I don't know what it is 11 or I don't know what it is but they have really made it easy to rate podcast now. I'm so glad they did this because I could never really explain to anyone how to rate one. But now, I still can't explain to you, but it's so easy. If you find the podcast on there, you can basically scroll down and you can go ahead and give it the starred rating and you can write a review pretty easy. So, that's just a plug for if you would go in and rate the podcast, please. Um, Now, I will just introduce uh, Major General Vinnie Bowles. Uh, He and I sat down and talked in person uh, recently at Southeastern Skin Cancer and Dermatology, which is a, a friend of ours, uh, business, Bo Rivera. And I was glad we were able to meet in person up in Huntsville and had a great time with him. Uh, he is, he's basically in the, the professional speaking circuit now. Um, but he just served nine years as a general in the army. He was also an army officer with 33 years of experience. So he's just a dynamic guy. And, um, so we, we talk not much about his military career. We do talk about some mistakes he made as a leader, especially a young officer. But then we, we talk a lot about leadership, leading in a crisis, and morale, and, you know, delivering bad news, and, you know, make keeping your best, getting better, that thing. Kind of staying, if you already are, um, maybe if things are going well, then how do you stay? How do you keep it at a, at an, at a high level and keep improving? So anyway, I'll, I'll bring in Vinny now. So Vinny, how is business? Business is really well. Uh, you've got to get used to white space on the calendar sometimes. Uh, like I had an incident where it was April and I looked out for the rest of the year and I had one event. And then you get kind of worried about that, but you keep pushing and uh, doing the best you can. And all of a sudden, you know, three weeks later, I've got seven events on the calendar and it moves from there. So uh, business is going very, very well. I'm as busy as I want to be, which is always a good thing. Yeah, so before we get into your work, I want to go back a little bit because I don't know anything about your background other than you're a major general in the Army, 
to which two-star general. I'm curious, first of all, is it the same across you know Air Force, Navy? Is is a, is a two-star general, a Navy general, uh, a major general, and then uh, really, what is your what was your military career like? Maybe some deployments, that kind of thing. Sure, uh, I came in the Army in 1976. Uh, Army was uh, going through a major transformation, coming from 1.5 million folks in the Vietnam era down to 785,000. Uh, that was when I came in the Army. Uh, then after that, uh, the next big surge was after I deployed to Desert Shield, Desert Storm with the 2nd Armored Division. And then after we came out of that, the Army went from 785,000 with the implosion of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall, went down to 480,000. So I saw those, those were the major reductions I saw in the force uh, as I was going on. Uh, went to Desert Shield, Desert Storm and uh, fought there. Came back, and then my first assignment, my first command as a general officer, I was sent out to Rock Island, Illinois, to command something called the Field Support Command. And it had a lot of things to do with the biggest thing it had to do was we were responsible for all the war reserves around the world that were stockpiled all around the world. And I I took that job six weeks before 9-11. And when I got to the job, it was all budgets are tight, you know, terrible to be you, good luck, fair share of the shortages, et cetera, et cetera, you know, constraints, everything else. Then 9-11 happened, and my reality quickly changed to how much money do you need and how fast can we get these war stocks up to where we got to go and everything else. And I, that was probably the biggest <laughs> shuffle and transformation I saw. Uh, I was very blessed. I was a general officer for nine years. And five of those nine years, I was a commanding general uh, in uh, four different uh, operations in four different places. And it was just, I was very, very blessed. Uh, many of my friends and uh, as general officers, maybe they got one command with troops, you know, in their entire general officer uh, career. And I got five straight years of it, so I was pretty fortunate, pretty blessed. What was the, the morale like during Desert Storm, Desert Shield? Morale was uh, two things. Morale was high. Uh, but soldiers were ap- soldiers and leaders especially were apprehensive. We were apprehensive because we were facing a guy who had uh, used chemical weapons in the past, and that really kept us awake at night. Uh, would he unleash chemical weapons, and how would he do that? Therefore, that that was why we had the overwhelming force of 500,000 soldiers, and were designed to move very very quickly because we wanted to do that because that was our apprehension, and we quickly overwhelmed them and you know went from there. But that, I think, was a... And it was the first time we had been in combat, really, since Vietnam. We had had some minor skirmishes in Grenada and mm-hmm. Panama, but it was the first major conflict we had had. And when you think of the shift, we took all these units out of Germany that were ready to fight the Soviet onslaught. And all of a sudden, we said, okay, now you're not going to fight the Soviets anymore. You're going to come out of Germany, and you're going to go down to you know, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and Iraq, and you're going to fight in there. That was, that was a big mental shift for a lot of folks. But uh, the biggest apprehension, I think, going in was uh, chemical weapons. We would be able to handle that if it came at us. We thought we could. Uh, thankfully, we didn't have to find out. Did you have any direct dealings with Schwarzkopf? Uh, no, I did not, other than I knew him. Uh, I knew of him, and, uh, but no, I had no direct dealings with him. Yeah, because I, you know, I was an early teenager then, and, and I remember just the pride I had you know, knowing that I felt so confident in our military mm-hmm. over there, and then I had this. I got this great book on the the war and on Schwarzkopf, and mm-hmm. I just thought he was just the greatest, you know, leader in the world. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it was, it was it seemed like high morale times. It was. It was the first time we had fought, and many of those officers that were senior leaders and generals in our army during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, had been lieutenants and captains in the Vietnam experience, and had uh, had suffered through that. 
and the trauma that it brought to the nation and the angst it brought to the nation. So it was for many of them, in my opinion, it was a vindication of, you know, we're okay as an army. You know, we've gone back out and proven it and we're okay and, mm -hmm. and doing very, very well. So yeah, it was a vindication for both the, both the nation and, uh, and the services as well. So what about your life now? You're traveling around the country, maybe the world. You're speaking. I've, uh, I'll have links in the show notes to your website, mm -hmm. and there's some great videos of you, clips of different businesses you're speaking to on different topics. Mainly, it seems like it's on leadership, leadership in a crisis. I mean, what, what is your... What are you doing now, and how'd you get into it? If you had told me 10 years ago that I was going to be out of the Army... I was going to be living in Alabama, and I was going to be speaking to corporate and association audiences and being an executive coach around the world. Uh, I would have said, you're 0 for 3. That's not happening. Uh, but each of those has happened. Uh, started in 2007, I was at the University of Virginia uh, speaking to a graduation uh, commissioning class of about 100 Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps uh, cadets that were about ready to become officers. Finished speaking, and a Navy dad came up to me and asked if I'd ever thought about being a public speaker. I said, no, I hadn't. He said, well, you should think about that, because I pay guys to do that, and they were half as good as you. And I said, people get paid to do this? He said, yeah, they do. I said, oh, okay. And then one thing led to another, and I ran into a guy who knew another guy who knew another guy, and a video of me speaking to an audience on active duty uh, got to the Washington Speakers Bureau in Alexandria, Virginia, which is the gold standard among speakers bureaus. And uh, they took a look at it, called me up. Uh, I went over, had an interview with them, met their sales staff. They thought I could fit a niche for them. And the next thing I know, uh, literally two weeks before I finish my terminal leave and sign out of the Army, I'm uh, speaking to an audience in Laguna Beach, California, about leading in a crisis. And uh, that's what I've been doing in the eight years since. But it was not a path I had expected to be on. A uh, fulfilling path, sounds uh, like. You, you, meet, you meet wonderful people. You meet a wide swath of people. I have spoken to the Secret Service. I have spoken to Fidelity and USAA Financial Services. I've spoken to the Volunteers of America. I mean, I've spoken to the Landscape Architects of America. So, I mean, there's a wide swath, and it just shows that regardless of the field that you're in, uh, leadership is a needed uh, a capability that you've got to have, and a lot of organizations are interested in finding out about that in associations. What are, what are the these companies specifically wanting you to speak on, or do they just say leadership and you take it from there? No, usually uh, they they will have either the two big major topics uh, that I speak on are supply chain optimization, which is what my portfolio was in the army, uh, getting the right thing to the right place in enough time that the person who needs it can do something with it, or I would also speak on leadership because of the extensive time I spent commanding and leading soldiers. Uh, so those are the two big portfolios. About three to six weeks before an event, I will sit down telephonically with the uh, people that have hired me, and we'll go over, tell me about the audience, tell me the demographics, tell me the psychographics of the audience. What's keeping them awake at night? What are their big challenges? And I will then build a presentation based off of that and what they need. Uh, and that's, that's what I'll do. And it varies on audiences. I'm gonna, I spoke to an audience now just this past weekend in Tucson, Arizona, and it was a logistics and supply chain forum, and they wanted to talk about leading supply chain organizations and logistics organizations and how you get that done. This weekend, I'll be out in Pebble Beach, California, and I'll be speaking to another group of 35 to 40 CEOs that work with this company that's hired me. 
and th that that's going to be completely different. These are going to be these are going to be very high level executives that are leading organizations, and that'll be more a strategic orientation as opposed to a tactical orientation of how you do that. So you have to uh, target your audience and see what they need and go from there. And I've been blessed with enough experiences and ranges of experiences uh, in leadership and supply chains that I can do that. Do you? This is you know I wasn't planning to ask this, but do you ever get into like? Sleep, proper sleep, and proper diet or exercise to help them to be better leaders. Do you talk about that side at all? I do talk about work-life balance, and I do talk to them about the four critical things I found over time leaders have to do every day. And if you're a leader, there's four critical things I found that if I don't do these four things, I suffer. Uh, the first is uh, you got to take time to think. You have to take some time to think. You can get so busy in the cycle and stir of things, you don't take time to think about what am I supposed to be doing? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Is it going the way I want it to go? Uh, second, you've got to take time to read. And you've got to read and sit back enough to read. It causes you to think and causes you to think about things you haven't thought about. Uh, then you've also got to take time to uh, eat and hydrate yourself. Uh, I know when I get in a cycle of leadership, especially when I would deploy, uh, reading and hydration and things like that and thinking and taking care of myself was an afterthought. Uh, you'll, you'll burn yourself out and you'll drive yourself too hard. And finally, the last thing you have to do is you have to rest. You have to get some sleep. Uh, I, I would see leaders that made this Iron Man thing about, you know, okay, well, I'll stay awake the next three or four days. Well, it was very interesting. The decisions they made on day one were a whole lot different than the decisions they'd make on day three or four. Mm -hmm. So I learned that you have to pace yourself, have to take care of yourself, and you have to build a team that can do those things. Uh, but, yeah, I have folks talk to me about that. Another thing that's uh, become a bigger cycle is uh, work-life balance. That's the bigger stressor. Uh, you know, how do I balance the requirements that are going on in my work at the same time all the requirements are going on in my life? And the millennial generation that's uh, coming up now and assuming an ever-expanding leadership role, uh, they are not buying into, I'm going to work myself into the ground and get a check at the end of the day and it's all going to be okay. They want to have that balance between being able to take care of their family, between taking care of their needs and their requirements, what they think they need and want to do, and at the same time doing uh, you know, the work requirements that they have to do. So mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. When I first started in the speaking business, uh, a go-to hook that a lot of speakers would use, I didn't, but a go-to hook a lot of speakers would use is they come out and they tell a millennial joke. And everybody kind of laugh and ruck yuck and roar and everything else. Interesting, eight, nine years later, uh, people who tell that joke don't get as much laughter. And the reason is there are more millennials in the workforce now than they're baby boomers. Yeah. When I first started, I would get questions from uh, baby boomers saying, how do I manage and lead these millennials? Interesting, the questions I'm getting now are from millennials going, how do I lead these baby boomers on my team to get stuff done who don't seem to get it and can't think outside the box? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting to watch how the dynamics change. But, uh, yeah, I do get a lot of questions about work-life balance, about taking care of yourself, and about handling yourself through the demands of leadership. Yeah, you know, I heard somebody say recently, they talked about, it's like a, the opposite mentorship of having an older person in a company be mentored by a like a millennial on Maybe it's technology or I don't know what it is, but I thought, well, that's a pretty good idea, too, because if I just look at it from the simple fact of, of technology and apps and things like that is mm -hmm. I constantly have to get updated by someone who is – I like going to somebody fresh out of college say, can you help me with Excel? With this, I thought I was good with Excel, but I'm not. I mean, there's a lot I don't understand. So um, they are that's, – that, that is a topic that is being addressed a lot, and it's interesting you say how a lot of your questions are now coming from – Millennials, yeah, I mean they're some of they're in the 30s now. Who are in leadership roles? Yeah, and they yeah. want to know how to how to handle this. 
because they know how to work with their peers, but know how to lead a bunch of seniors. And one of the th reasons they come to guys like us in the military is, uh, I was a second lieutenant, I was 22 years old, and I had a platoon sergeant who was 35 years old and had been in Vietnam twice already, and I was his boss. You, you gotta figure that out real fast, that you can't come walking in, you know, shouting orders, throwing people around and saying, here's what we're gonna do. You gotta, you gotta build a coalition and coalesce folks and lead folks. How did you approach that situation, and what mistake or mistakes did you make, possibly? The biggest mistake I made at that time, I still remember it, I tried to be one of the guys. You know, I wanted to show I wasn't bigger than them, I wanted to be one of the guys. And I fell into a, uh, a, a bit more profanity than I should have. And I'd been doing it for a couple of weeks, and my platoon sergeant came to me, God love him, Charles Fred. And he walked up, he said, you know, sir, me and the other sergeants were talking. Uh, we think it's real cool that uh, we got a lieutenant who's like all over it. And I was kind of feeling cocky, saying, yeah, I got this stuff. And he looked and said, yeah, we think it's real cool we got a lieutenant who knows all the same swear words we do. And I can talk, telling that story to you right now, I can feel the cold pit in my stomach when he said that. And I thought, oh, my God, I've screwed this up. And then to show what a great leader he was, he reached out and tapped me on the shoulder and said, but we, we know you're going to be okay, sir. You're going to snap out of that now, aren't you? I said, yeah, and to this day, if I catch a leader uh, falling into profanity or falling into some of those things, what I've learned over time is if you lose control of yourself by falling into profanity or rages or things like that, you may think you're motivating your, your folks. What you're really doing is you're showing them you're out of control, and what you're making them question is, do I really want this guy to control me if he or she can't control themselves? Yeah. So that was probably the biggest lesson I learned coming up. Uh, also, uh, they, they, the Army is 242 years old. Uh, the Army has survived second lieutenants before. I'm not the first second lieutenant that's come into the Army and said I'm in charge of a sergeant. Uh, it's part of our culture, and, and they understand that. Uh, they want me to be in charge. They just don't want me to be a dictator if I don't have to be. So that's the biggest thing I found out with that. So I want to tell you about a situation that I had years ago before a job I worked at. Very short period of time. I didn't really want to take the job, but I'd been laid off, and I said, okay, I'll give it a chance, even though this company was not, did not have a good reputation in my opinion. And there was a lot of uh, negativity. The morale was low. A lot of work, you know, work hours every weekend, overtime. And uh, I, I, my role was not clearly defined by my leadership. It was like, hey, well, we needed a materials manager, but we had two strong candidates, you and this other lady. So we just hired you both. And we'll let y'all be the materials managers. And it was a really odd situation. And there were some young ladies in the office that I don't know for sure if I managed them or not. Part of this is my fault too, right? Not really finding out, but we, we had no leadership at all. And uh, therefore I was probably a poor leader, but there was some back talking and, you know, shutting the door and talking, making fun of people and laughing. I mean, how do you handle that kind of situation as a leader? First and foremost, what I found is uh, folks take their cues off their leadership. If you don't like the way things are going, before you go out and start ranting and raving at folks, you've got to sit down and ask yourself, what signals am I giving off that lets them think that negative behavior is okay? Because I may be saying one thing and doing another. So what signals am I giving off? Uh, I've seen leaders who would stand there in front of a group of soldiers and say, physical training is very important. 
And soldiers would be looking at him thinking, yeah, and you look like the last time you ever ran was when you heard the donut shop was closing. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just like, give me a break here. So they want to see you mirror the behavior. If you want an organization that's professional, competent, cool, calm, then you have to be professional, competent, cool, and calm. You have to mirror the behavior that you want. So when I find uh, back talk going on, negative talk going on, things of that nature, the first thing I try to do is I try to be positive and set the right tone. I understand they take their cues from me. What I also do is if I find back talk going on, uh, I will, about anybody, I will uh, confront, confront them, but I try to confront them very uh, safely. I just walk over and say, hey, I understand you've been talking about this. Can I clear anything up for you? Is there, you know, any question marks you got about that or any things I can answer for you? Because nature uh, doesn't like a vacuum. So if there's a leadership vacuum at the top level, don't think that someone's not going to try to fill it at a bottom level. And that's where scuttlebutt and rumors and all that other stuff come from. It's because leaders don't step up and fill the vacuum. Your folks will step up and fill the vacuum. So what you have to do is when there's stress going on, question marks going on, things of that nature, you have to more engage and more communicate with folks as opposed to less. And there are leaders under stress who think, well, I, I better not talk so much. No, get it out there and tell them what you know. Answer their questions. I, I still remember one time in uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I was talking to a bunch of soldiers. Our situation was changing. And they said, you've got you to gotta brief your kids. So I had an easel with me. And the first thing I did was pull it out of the back of the Humvee, put it up, and said, there are 20 kids out there standing out there. I said, what are your questions? And I, had an easel. I wrote every one of their questions down. And I just started at the top. I answered all their questions. And I said, what are the questions you got? And I said, no, I, we, we kind of got it. And I said, okay. And then something just told me to do this. I shook each one of their hands and thanked them. Years later, I had some of those kids run into me, and they would say, we still remember you taking the time to ask us what our questions were and answering our questions, not coming in and giving us a script and saying, here's what i got to tell you. And they said, the fact that you shook our hands after everything. So it became one of my things. Whenever I'd have a big briefing to soldiers or a big uh, initiative, like before we went on a deployment, I would always stand by the door when it was over, and I would always shake their hands, and I'd always thank them. And that little contact of them looking me in the eye, mm -hmm. it almost like sealed a little contract between the two of us. I'm here for you. You're here for me. We'll be here for each other. And I found that was pretty critical. Yeah, I, I, I can believe that. That makes sense. Yeah. What about, um, I like, can we elaborate more on your own leadership in a crisis? Sure. Uh, it, it's the, the big challenge of leading in a crisis is the organization's hit, a crisis has hit the organization, the organization's hurting, the organization may be reeling, you may be reeling, and exactly at the time that the organization's been beat down, you've been beat down, you have to step up and you have to be at your best. Because that's when you really have to be at your best. Anybody can be a good leader when it's 70 degrees out, the sun's shining, you got three email messages in your inbox, and the only crisis you got is your HR person and finance person are running up and down the halls going, I don't know what to do with all these great candidates we got, and I don't know what to do with all this money we have. Things are just wonderful. Leadership's pretty easy then. It's when the heat's high, the pressure's on, and the outcome's uncertain, and stress and a crisis hits the organization, that you really have to watch people step up. And that's when you have to be at your best as a leader. That's when you have to be more proactive, more responsive, more predictive about what's going to happen and try to tell your folks everything you can and free them up so they can get stuff done. Because people in a crisis, the, the organization will have a bias toward action. They'll want to do something to respond to a crisis. And if you sit on your hands and say, well, wait till I figure something out, it's going to be too late. 
Are there any specifics that either that you experienced in your career or with companies that you've talked to that you could kind of elaborate on with some of these crises? Uh, 9-11. 9-11. Uh, six weeks before 9-11, as I started to tell you, I went out to Rock Island, Illinois, to the heartland of America, and took over this organization that all the war reserves. And then, uh, you know, on, on the 11th of September, I'm walking into work, and, you know, I detail at the start of the book, I'm walking into work, and two planes have flown to the World Trade Center. And all of a sudden, by the end of the day, we're at war, and we're in six hours, we're shipping bombs to wipe an Air Force base to start loading up, to start getting ready for bombing runs that they're preparing to go on, to go to, to have to do to respond. So I, I saw the organization transform itself, and, the, and I didn't have a second team. My, my folks at Rock Island were all planning folks and contingency folks, and then when the contingency actually happened, we had executed, I couldn't go out, open up the door, and call Central Casting and say, okay, give me the operational team now. The same people that were doing the planning had to do the execution. And those civilians, uh, predominantly a civilian organization, went from uh, five days a week, eight hours a day, to 24-7 operations, 365. They are still doing it to this day. And, and that was uh, probably one of the more amazing events that I went through to see how people respond. And they really want leadership, and they want you to tell them what you know. They also want you to ask. I, I would always get in the habit of asking before I launch people off. I'd say, okay, now what am I missing? When you walk out the door and sit down at your desk, what are you going to say I forgot to ask you or forgot to tell you to do? And I always learn something every time. Somebody would always tell me something, and i go, that's a good one. I forgot that. How would you say the leadership was at that time? From the top, let's talk about the, you know, the president down to leadership in the, in the military. What was it like after 9-11? Uh, it was challenging because... We had not, uh, despite the intel and everything else, as an organization and as a nation, we were not ready for that. Uh, People forget, you know, people will talk about Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor happened in Hawaii, thousands of miles outside the continental United States, in an era when we did not have instantaneous communication, to a place that was not yet a state, and it happened on a military base, predominantly. So Pearl Harbor was an event that, that galvanized the nation, but it galvanized the nation over a couple of days. 9-11 happened, and everybody saw it live on TV when the second plane hit. First plane hit, everybody's tuning in. They watched the second plane in real time start mm-hmm. hitting. They watched the, uh, the Pentagon get hit. They watched the Pentagon get hit, and they see all that happening in real time. That really galvanizes people, and it really strikes at people. Uh, the president, uh, the President Bush, even commented that he should have immediately come back to Washington. Uh, Vice President Cheney and uh, Condoleezza Rice, the National Security Advisor, advised maybe you need to stay away till we sort this all out. Looking back on it now, he says, "No, I should have come right back, set things up." Uh, but we were not initially uh, ready as a nation, prepared as a nation, nor, nor I think was the world prepared for something like that, to hit it real time, to see everything unfold. And that was, I think, the bigger challenge of it. Uh, in responding to something like that, you want to make sure you do the right thing. Uh, more importantly, you want to make sure you don't do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were people who were saying, just take nukes and hit Afghanistan and blow it back into the Stone Age. Well, that, that, that might do some things, but it would not have... Uh, it would not have elicited a, a response. It would have been a good immediate response and would have satisfied some rage and a desire for revenge, but it wouldn't have been a geostrategic uh, military response we should have engaged in. Have you been surprised at the, or were you surprised at the response of how many people joined the military because of 9-11? I, 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 I was gratified by that, by the number of people. I heard all this gas about how terrible this generation was and everything else. I, I get asked on occasion... 
uh, General Bowles, you know, we had the greatest generation in World War II. Uh, they were the greatest generation. They did all these great things. What about this generation? And I tell these people that you already have the greatest generation of the 21st century out there now. I hear all this gas about millennials and how terrible they are. Every year, 170,000 young men and women join the United States Army. And they join the United States Army knowing there's a very good chance they're going to go on a conflict, go on a combat. And they know that. And yet they still join. And I have seen these kids go off into the dirt in the dark and in the face of an enemy that wants to kill them and lead convoys and lead patrols and connect with villages and build schools and improve water systems. And I see them do it day in and day out. And uh, they are great teammates. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to find the greatest generation of the 21st century, go look at your military right now. They are out there and they are doing... Uh, they are doing their grandfathers very, very proud by how they're acting right now. You say 170,000. That's just the Army. That's right? just, the, That's Army. just the, Army. Yeah, the Army does more than the Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps combined. But the Army is the largest service, and we bring about 170,000 a year in that is active Reserve Component National Guard. Wow. How did 9-11 affect you personally? Because you're from up in that area. Yeah. I was born and raised in New York City. My dad would take me downtown when the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, were going up. So when I was in Rock Island and I looked on TV and I saw him go down, it had a pretty visceral effect in me. I mean, they didn't just hit America, they hit my home. I mean, I lived there. I'd walked those streets down, down in New York. So that really viscerally affected me. My mother had uh, girlfriends of hers who had uh, sons and daughters in the financial district who passed away and were killed in that. So it was, a, it was a much more visceral personal effect for me than, than for others. Mm, yeah. All right, well, moving on. Um, praise. What, what public or private praise, when is it appropriate or not, and how, how good is it? Uh, yeah, well, first off, if you praise people, it, it's, it's good because you, you are saying to them, I recognize what you're doing, and it's making a difference, and thank you. So you never go wrong doing that when you praise publicly. The only challenge when you praise publicly, and I think one of the reasons it happens so infrequently, is leaders are afraid they're going to forget somebody. So I don't get into what I call laundry list praise deals. You know, where you go out with a laundry list of, I, I need to thank these six people who did a great job the last quarter, A, B. Well, you're going to forget somebody. Or you're going to praise somebody who didn't do all the work and forget somebody who did do all the work about it. What I do find is better when you praise in public, I praise around a project. Gang, we just had the XYZ project go off this quarter, and I will tell you, the people involved in that, you are making such a difference. It's making a big difference. That project's a big deal. Now you've coalesced them around the project and what's going on. Uh, so I find praising in public is always positive. One of the reasons it happens again so infrequently is people are afraid of forgetting somebody and turning it into a negative for the organization as opposed to a positive. Uh, in private... Uh, usually, uh, almost always, uh, you, you, uh, you bring people in and you discipline in private. Uh, because what I found is in an organization, when you discipline somebody publicly, uh, the organization is looking at their peer getting hit. They have to make a decision about, you know, do they align with their peer or do they align with their superior? And most people will align with their peer. I've seen it as an instructor. Uh, you will be teaching, and I've seen some instructors decide to be a, uh, a, smart, a smart aleck, and they'll take on somebody in the classroom. Ah, you really shouldn't have said something like that. That's pretty stupid. Well, as soon as they say that, I watch the class turn on the instructor. 
You know, the tribes build up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So uh, I find praising in public always works. Uh, oriented around a project usually and an accomplishment. And uh, disciplining in private. Okay. Uh, going back to um, a crisis, like a small crisis, someone asks you, like, I work for a company that, by the way, I am a supply chain guy. right? Mm-hmm. I'm in p- corporate procurement now. I've been a buyer. I've been in inventory control. Uh, we have that in common. I forgot to tell you, but... Um, we, we, the steel industry has, margins are very low right now. Um, you know, sales are, are no worse than they were last year. It's just the margins are very thin. And we've, we've done some downsizing. Uh, even in the, in the procurement group, even, we've, they let go of some people. And I remember seeing an email. I was on vacation. I happened to check my phone. I saw the email. It just kind of, my heart sunk because I knew these people they let go. Of course, the thought is, am I next? Am I, is my job on the line? And um, how do you, as a leader, when 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 you're even like your group is having to lay people off, how do you lead in those type of situations? Well, first off, it's interesting you mentioned that about layoffs, and that, and the, and I want to track it to the millennial conversation we've had. I was listening to a, uh, a radio show a while back, and they were talking to a bunch of young millennials, and they were all talking about their side hustles. That was the story of the. Uh, that was the theme of the. Uh, show it was they were talking to all these kids about their side hustles about the side jobs they had in addition to working for the abc corporation they were an uber driver or they were a graphic artist or they were a musician or whatever and this one young man was talking and he said look when i explain this to my parents this way they got it i told my parents remember how you wanted to diversify your financial portfolio to minimize risk and the parents were sure he said good well, I need to diversify my portfolio, my skill portfolio. So if one job falls off, I got something else I can do. I got something else I can do. So they don't see anything wrong with getting competent in more than one or two skills, but they want to diversify themselves. So if they lose one asset of a job, they can go to the next one and go do something else. Uh, the, the allegiance and alignment to corporations or entities of this generation doesn't have because they see what their parents have gone through. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in terms of what you talked about, which is how do you, how do you lead in those situations, uh, the first thing you have to do is you have to understand, uh, you have to, empathy is probably the most critical skill. What are they going through? Because as their leader, uh, the corporation is going to give you the doctrine Okay, here's what we're doing. We're cutting 3,462 people, and here are the names, and please put this out. HR says, please put this out by Thursday at 6 a.m., and here is the way to do it and everything else. My advice is let the HR folks and the lawyers advise you, but you have to be the leader, and you have to let folks know. And when, when you have to lay folks off, it's hard. It is not easy. Uh, what you have to do is explain it to them. Here's the reason it's happening. Uh, it's not, and they, they really, you know, we don't do a good job with this. We tell folks it's not personal. Uh, to you it isn't, to them it is. They're trying to figure out how am I going to make a mortgage payment? Mm-hmm. How am I going to pay this? So uh, thinking through some empathy and how this is going to affect them uh, really makes, it makes a large difference. Yeah. Yeah, well said. And I imagine just how you present yourself, you still need to come across as confident and, I don't know, Positive, hope, hopeful or positive, I guess, too? To, I think you have to come, the word I'd search for is you have to come across as caring. Okay. You know, I know this isn't easy. Can I help you? Do you need a reference? If you know somebody and you can call them up and say, hey, I've got a great guy, gal, needs a job. I just had a friend this summer, uh, you know, uh, lost one job, great, great in her skill, 
was able to help her find another job. Now she's she's thriving and doing well on that. Uh, people understand that downsizing occurs, but when you when the, it's one thing to be downsized, it's another thing to be cut adrift and get told, okay, uh, you used to be part of this entity, you're on your own now, sucks to be you, get out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really when people start feeling the resentment. I'm sure when you have to stand over and watch them pack their stuff up, mm-hmm. escort them out the building, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody wants to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about, uh, what makes... What makes members of the military capable or maybe even more capable of leading during challenging times? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. First off, we're trained to respond. You know, in the Army, you're doing one of two things. You're defending, you're attacking, or you're getting ready to do one of those two. So we are trained to respond when something occurs. Uh, we also have a bias at the tactical level toward action. So we have a bias toward tactical action when it occurs, when something occurs. And finally, we also have a habit of uh, being on a team and being about teammates and being synergy. And more than, more, more than not, uh, kids don't want to let their teammates down. They, they really want to, be a, they want to be viewed as a positive member of the team that, you know, you can count on me. Uh, I know when I would be on high-performing organizations, you'd walk in, you'd look around and go, Man, no, no weak swimmers in this group. I, I, better, I better be bringing my A game every day. There and you just see that and you realize that and have to step up and do that. So I find that's what makes us better, uh, more capable to respond to crisis because we're used to doing things as a team and have a bias toward response and tactical action. Mm-hmm. What about management versus leadership? And you have specifically said this, you know, that management does not equal leadership. It does not. Will you elaborate on that? Well, first off, it's not an either-or equation because some people like to make it that you're either a manager or no. You have to. It has to be. You have to be both and. You can't be either a manager or a leader. The way I describe it is this. Management is directive. I call management the clipboard and the task list. i got to get these 10 things done. A, B, C. Here's what i got to get done. And you judge success by, you know, lining things off your list. Uh, I say it. management is directive. Leadership is connective. How do you connect with folks to get that done? Management is your task list. Leadership is it's 4.35 in the afternoon and one of your subordinates is leaving and they hear you on the phone and hear you say something about something they're involved in. They stop what they're doing, execute an about face, go back to their desk, pick up their file folder, and they're standing outside your door when you hang up the phone and they look at you and go, what do you need? Versus they keep walking to the parking lot and say, well, let me get out of here before the boss asks me any questions. Leadership is when you ask folks two questions, they come back with five answers. And you go, what's that? Well, here's the three other things you're going to need to know if you're going to go into a room and talk about that. So that's the real difference between leadership and management. Management is directive. Leadership is connective. Do you take the time to form those connections with folks? Do you take the time to understand how come they're working for you and what their expectations are out of you? I really believe that's the big key and the big difference. What about, let's see what we can uh, learn from Stevie Wonder. So I liked you talked about this before <laughs> about uh, superstition. Is that the song, I think? It is. I, I was, it was years ago. Uh, it was during the financial crisis. And there was a guy on uh, NPR with, uh, on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, uh, the radio show. And Terry said to him, can you explain how the financial crisis occurred? And I was waiting for a long economic-based, uh, you know, facets and nuances answer. And the guy said, the reason the financial crisis occurred is like Stevie Wonder said. When you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer. And I found in leadership, I tell leaders that one of the things I, I try to leave them with is... As you become a more senior leader, uh, the issues get harder, the questions become more difficult. And I found as a senior leader, I spent more time 
understanding, trying to understand. I spent more time asking questions than I did worrying about answers. Uh, when I would sit in a meeting and I would get a briefing, I would always wonder, is there a question I'm missing? Is there something I'm forgetting to ask? Uh, so when you believe in things you don't understand, you're going to suffer. And if you're a leader and you send your folks off on something you don't completely understand, they're going to suffer. They're going to remember who sent them off on it. Mm -hmm. They're going to remember who sent them and left them adrift and uh, you know sucking at it, this thing. So it was, it's your job as a leader to put them in a position to be successful and making sure you understand what you're asking them to undertake. What, what is most effective as a leader? Let's say you, you bring your team together and you talk about, well, well, is it more effective to say, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it? Any questions? Or I know this is kind of an obvious um, you know, answer, but I want you to really your thoughts on this. Or is it present a topic or an idea and you sit back and listen and then you basically speak last after you've heard everyone speak? I have never gone wrong speaking last. Now, always a caveat to everything. Uh, it depends on the situation. If the enemy's coming over the, the wall... Uh, we're not going to have a big consensus meeting right about now. It's going to be grab your weapon, grab your ammo, get to the barricades and take them out. The reserve falls in on me and I'll put the reserve where I have to as I see the enemy starting to breach certain areas. We're not going to have a lot of time for consensus and they understand that. But when you do have time to have explanations and to understand and discuss things, I find, uh, and Simon Sinek, the uh, leadership theorist, has talked about this, it's, it's never wrong for the leader to speak less. They know you're the boss. If you speak first, you restrict the conversation. You, 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 you put the conversation in certain directions that maybe it should or shouldn't go. And when you speak first, you're trying to show everybody you're the smartest guy in the room. When you speak last, you show folks you want to be as smart as everybody in the room. And it's, it's interesting. It's how you take that feedback, how you take that uh, attitude, uh, bring to it. The attitude you bring to it has to be, really, I didn't know that, versus that's pretty stupid. I wouldn't say that again. You start with, that's pretty stupid. I, I didn't want to say that again. Nobody's going to say anything yeah, after that. Yeah. So I find speaking last uh, when the situation allows, but sometimes it doesn't. And at times like that, they will turn to you as a leader and say, boss, what do you need to do? You know, when I was in Berlin, Germany, and the wall was up, uh, we had a mantra that every single soldier in Berlin knew. And the mantra was very simple. Be at the wall at N plus 2. N be a notification hour. From two, N plus 2 was hours. Two hours after notification, you better be in a uniform, be with your gear, whatever time you got called. Four in the morning, four in the afternoon, it didn't kind of matter. You better be at the wall, meaning be at your battle position whether it was on the staff or someplace else, you better be at your battle position at N plus two ready to do what it is you have to do. Boy, that'll clear your head faster than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. What, what relationship is there between being a follower and being a leader? Well, leaders can judge how well they're doing by how, how well they're being followed. There's, there's an old joke about, uh, you know, if you, if you think you're leading and nobody's following you, you're really just taking a walk. You're really not leading anybody. So when you are leading folks, watch and see uh, how they respond. Do they willingly respond? Are their heads up, their eyes bright, and they're saying, yep, I got it, boss, I'm on the team, what do you need me to do? Or are they just kind of sitting there with their hands in their pockets, leaning back, saying, well, I'm listening, but I'm not really buying. I'm, I'm not really into this yet. So that, that really is the indicator, you know, the followership. And they watch to see also how well you follow your leaders. You know, if you expect everybody to be great to you and loyal to you and follow you, and then they hear out of the other side of your mouth, 
that your boss is an idiot and your boss can't do his job and your boss can't do this very well and that very well, and they see that you denigrate leadership and everything else above you, they they kind of have a little difficulty giving you the same deference and the same leadership that you 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 desire but aren't demonstrating. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about um, Nick Saban for a second. You know, we're in Alabama. That's <laughs> my right. alma mater. Mm-hmm. And uh, what would you say to someone like him or his team if you were to speak to them or or a company the same way that has kind of been at the top, been very successful? Um, for quite a while now, and known to be that way. What do you What do you say to to kind of keep that going? Uh, first off, you tell them it's not about doing your best. Uh, I talk to them about how is your best getting better, because somebody's always coming behind you. So you know when you, you people think, well, I'm doing my best. Well, that's okay, but you know what I want to know is, are you better now than you were six months ago? What are you doing today to make yourself better six months from now? Uh, I remember 20 years ago, uh, Tiger Woods was going to be the greatest golfer who ever walked the face of the earth, and no one would ever be his equal, and he would be phenomenal. Now, Tiger seems stalled at 14 major championships. Jack Nicklaus still is the, the king at 18. But there are a bunch of young guns coming up behind Tiger who are not deferring to Tiger and bowing down to Tiger and everything else. His best stopped getting better because of a combination of physical and some other ailments and things he had. Well, it's the same thing. With uh, Nick Saban, the situation is he is constantly rotating his team every year. I mean, he's gone through in the national championships, he went through how many different offensive coordinators, how many different quarterbacks, has gone through that. What he does is he builds a process that people have to work within and they have to maintain excellence. And he wants the best to keep getting better. And he doesn't focus on, it's interesting when you read and, and watch what he does, he doesn't focus on records. He focuses on, are you doing the right thing when you're supposed to do it? And if you mm-hmm. do that, the right things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm not focusing on records, and I'm not focusing on what else. Sometimes they will find, really great, we'll find out they played better in a loss than they did in some of their victories. And when they do that, you've got to say, you know, every once in a while the ball bounces the other way. But he really focuses on doing the right thing. You can see some of the rages he goes into on the sidelines when he's up by 37 points, and you're going, you're, you're up by 37 points, dude. Chill out. Well, he's not going to chill out because he's, he's driven that way, mm-hmm. and he wants folks to get better because he understands as soon as you rest on your laurels, uh, somebody's coming up to take those laurels from you. So it's really about your best getting better. And if you're a high-performing organization, the one advantage of that is if things are going okay today, you can focus on your best getting better, but it's time to focus on the future and how do you get better. What did you not get around to? Well, you're doing pretty good now. You've got time to focus on some of those things. The biggest thing is you cannot get complacent when you're doing well. Otherwise, you're going to lose your place. Yeah, uh, hopefully we didn't uh, lose all the Alabama haters in that that topic just then. Well, the Auburn folks will let you know. Don't, <laughs> yeah, don't worry. It's interesting you mention that. When I moved to Alabama, the first thing folks would ask me is uh, they'd lean in real close, and especially the first year I was here, they'd say, because you can tell from my accent, I don't sound like I'm from here. And people would say, uh, have you found a church yet? And uh, you had to answer that question about five seconds. Their car was going to be parked in your driveway Sunday. They were going to be taking you to their church. And uh, being an Irish Catholic from New York, I thought it was a bounty system. You know, hey, I brought a new one in. Where's my chicken? Where's my pie? I brought another one. But the other thing they'll do is they'll lean in real close and look at you and say, you're new here. I say, yes, I am, sir. And I'd say, well, uh, okay, boy, where you at? Roll Tide, War Eagle, where you at? And so far I've told them, well, I, I, I still, I'm still a Go Army fan. And they pat me on the head very nicely and say, we don't play them yet. Hope you boys beat Navy this year and leave me alone. So uh, we've been pretty good so far. Yeah, my um, 
my wife's family lives out west, and her mother-in-law is here visiting, or her mom is visiting right now, and she just told me again recently, she said, you know everybody hates Alabama. So, yes, I know. Mm-hmm. I know that. That's all right. Uh, in closing, let's, I want to talk about your book, Leadership 4321. Will yeah. you just talk about it and, and uh, maybe how it got the title? Or, it was, uh, it was uh, when I came back from Iraq in uh, 2004, I thought I would have, I brought my unit back. We had been assigned to Germany. We got deployed to uh, Kuwait and Iraq. And I thought we would uh, we would redeploy home. And normally Germany is a two-year tour. And I wasn't back 90 days. And I got a phone call that said, uh, I hadn't been in command a year yet. And they said, uh, you're leaving and you're going to go take command of the Ordnance Center and Schools at Aberdeen Proving Ground, Maryland. And uh, Ordnance is uh, the largest branch at Aber- in the Army. It's head, it was at the time headquartered at Aberdeen Proving Ground, 120,000 soldiers in the Ordnance Corps. And they do all ammunition, uh, surveillance, and maintenance. They do all bomb disposal, EOD, the IED threat that we have now in the, the fight. And then the, all the maintenance that goes on in the Army, all the maintenance MOSs, military occupational specialties. So I had about 35 different military occupational specialties. We were training anywhere about 20,000 soldiers a year. And the whole Corps was 120,000, so they would rotate through the training. So I thought I had to concentrate on technical aspects of the job. You know, are we doing things right? I found technical aspects was the last thing I needed. When I would talk to classes as the commanding general, as the commandant, I would talk to classes, I would talk to sergeants, I would talk to warrant officers, I'd talk to young officers. They, they didn't ask me technical questions. They wanted leadership questions. So I came up with this 4-3-2-1 presentation. I, I built it and thought about it. And it was the four expectations folks have of leaders. Three critical questions leaders should ask and answer before they launch their folks off on something. Uh, Two reasons for stress in organizations, and I found only two reasons for stress. And then the one critical factor of the equation, which is how do you master the trust equation and maintain and instill and keep the trust equation going in the organization between the leader and the lead. And I find those are the critical things to do. I was out on the speaking circuit for about two, two and a half years. And a guy came up to me at the, after a presentation I did in Orlando, and he said, Sir, I was in the back of the room, and there's no book for sale. I said, well, no, sir, I didn't think there was enough about a book. He said, General, you need to write this book. You need to do that. So I started working on it. Uh, I didn't put that book together at first. I put a book called Leadership A to Z together. And each letter of the alphabet, three or four leadership lessons, each letter of the alphabet. Uh, a, uh, don't mistake activity for achievement. B, behavior is believable. C, don't mistake competence for confidence, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We'll go through it like that. And uh, X, Y, and Z were a little challenging, but I got through those mm-hmm. as well. And then uh, I, I hit a stalling point. I found a publisher. I finally self-published. We're in our fifth printing now. Just amazing. And uh, most of the sales are, you can get on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but most of the sales are uh, what I call back-of-the-room sales or pre-sales. An organization, for example, just had me, uh, and they wanted to have me speak, so they hired me to come speak, and they also said, we want 150 copies of the book, and mm-hmm. would you please sign them, and would you please uh, stay afterwards and personalize them for our audience, like to give them, put it in the audience's goodie bag, you know, and like as, as a takeaway for them that they can have with them. So I've been, I've been very blessed, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's been an amazing experience. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, and people get surprised when I say that, but the reason is, in the Army, I got paid and was required and responsible for getting other people to do things. Uh, when I was writing the book, if I didn't like the way it was going, I got up from my desk, went in the bathroom, looked in the mirror, and yelled at the guy who wasn't doing what he was supposed to do because there wasn't anybody else to do it but me. So I was uh, very, very fortunate. It was, a, it was an interesting journey. I learned a lot about aspects of a business I knew nothing about. But it's, uh, it's been very fulfilling. I've been very, very blessed. Great. So where do you recommend people get your book? Uh, well, you can uh, get it at, uh, uh, you can go on Amazon. 
You can also go on uh, Barnes & Noble's site. Uh, you can also go on my website, uh, vinnybowles.com. That's V-I-N-N-Y-B-O-L-E-S, vinnybowles.com. And you can uh, just uh, send me an email and tell me you'd like one. And if you'd like one, I'll send you a personalized copy signed, and uh, you can send me a check, and we can do it from there. Great. What, what, what in closing, Mr. Bowles? Uh, I would say that uh, leadership's not complicated. It does require time to connect with the folks that work for you. And it does require patience. And I find more importantly, it requires persistency and consistency. It's the most important thing we do. But sometimes we get so many urgent things pulling us away from leadership that we don't get the chance to do the important things that we have to do. There's nothing you can do that's more important than connecting with your folks. And one of the challenges is uh, folks change so often, move around so often, that uh, I still remember when I was in battalion command as a lieutenant colonel. I'd been in command for about a year. And I said, okay, now I've been in, you know, it's a two-year job. Okay, I've been here a year. Now I'm really going to kick it into gear the second year because, you know, I got my stride, know what I want to do. And I started talking and people started looking at me strange. And I started realizing, how many of these folks were in the job they were in a year ago? And the answer was not many. So folks will turn. So you you, you can never, ever, ever, ever over-communicate with your folks. About the time you get tired of talking about it, you're about halfway done. There's still more to say. So never miss the opportunity to connect with and talk to your folks. Uh, don't hesitate to ask your folks what they're thinking. They'll usually tell you. Uh, and I would say the most critical skill, I get asked a lot, what's the most critical leadership skill someone should have? I have found over time the most critical leadership skill is how you take bad news. Uh, if you take bad news as you're going to pull a flamethrower out from underneath your desk and start taking people out and you're going to start throwing people under the bus because things went wrong, things go wrong to good organizations. Bad things happen to good teams. You know, Alabama, God, God love us, Alabama throws interceptions. Alabama has fumbles. That's not the problem. The issue is how do you respond to bad things when they happen? Great organizations respond as a team and bad things bring a team together and they say, we got this, we'll fix it. In substandard organizations, when something bad happens, they go, that's not fair, it sucks to be us, it's somebody else's fault. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I look for. How do you take bad news? Do you use it as a building block to build on and get better? Or do you use it as a, a blame uh, scapegoating uh, mechanism? But if you use it as blame scapegoating, it's not going to work very well. Longer answer than you probably wanted, but that's kind of my thought on that. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, and thanks so much for what you're doing for uh, all our forces and all our folks out there, uh, you know, keeping the torch held high for us. You're welcome. I love it. It's my side hustle. It's just uh, I can't live off of it right now. <laughs> I understand. Thanks so much. Okay.